Tonight I'd like to first begin by wishing Happy Father's Day to all the fathers. Uh, I hope all the fathers have had a lovely day and feel thoroughly appreciated. And then secondly, I, uh, I, sh- I would need to apologize to all the Sunderland supporters who, about who I gave a bad reputation last week when I was talking about that uh, shocking behavior on the aeroplane flight to Geneva. Uh, it wasn't Sunderland supporters, it was Middlesbrough supporters. And so uh, I'd like to ask for forgiveness from all the Sunderland supporters, uh, the majority of which I'm sure are very, very well behaved. And uh, Sunderland's a lovely place, and uh, I can't say too many nice things about Sunderland. And Middlesbrough, I'm sure, is also probably a very nice place. <laughs> However, there are a few of their supporters that... Uh, their behavior is uh, seriously uh, in need of some uh, review. And so it was about the Middlesbrough supporters that I was speaking last week, and uh, I stand corrected. And thank you for pointing that out to me. Um, so carrying on from last week's uh, contemplation, it was about frustration. I wonder if during the week since last, last Sunday when I, I talked about how we We create frustration basically out of unawareness. And if we're not very careful and consistent in our effort to be mindful in the moment, here and now, um, then when frustration arises, we, we jump to conclusions that are often inaccurate. And our behavior reflects that. We, we start uh, blaming. And, um, and we have all sorts of distorted thoughts about what's wrong with the world, what's wrong with other people, and what's wrong with our partner, what's wrong with our children. And, and uh, yes, of course, as I pointed out last week, there is a time and place to address the injustices of the world and the inappropriateness in our behavior and that of others. But the point of last week's contemplation was, from a spiritual perspective, it's really important, it's necessary, that we own our part in it. And we can contemplate, well, what am I contributing? What have I contributed to this situation that brought about the frustration? And and where we ended up last week, as I remember, was that uh, it's this taking fixed positions heedlessly taking fixed positions, not remembering our refuge to awareness, which is observing the tendency to take fixed positions, but just falling into our conditioned responses and taking sides for and against. If the situation is disagreeable, then we, we take a position against it, and, we, and then our behavior reflects that. I was reading an article on the news um, about Australia. The Australians are getting all in a panic about a bunch of frogs. 
I don't know if you read this, this, this article. It's, uh, the people in northern Australia, anyway, the ones in southern Australia probably don't mind. They're probably having a nice time. But the ones in tropical Australia are really upset because there's these frogs, which they're calling invaders. Now, they're not frogs, actually. They're toads, and they're really ugly. I mean, they're really ugly toads. And these toads have multiplied to such an extent that now they're calling in the army. They're calling the army. The state government has written to the federal government in Canberra and asked the army to be deployed to deal with these frogs. These frogs have now reached the outskirts of Darwin. And and also they're on the border with uh, Western Australia. They're not just in Northern Territories now. They're about to invade Western Australia, and these Australians are very, very upset about it. One member of parliament suggested that everybody should go out with their golf clubs and whack them or their cricket bats, which is a kind of, I don't know, if that's how they do things in Australia. It doesn't seem very friendly. <laughs> Another member of parliament, no, no, actually it was the animal welfare people. The animal welfare people said you should put them in the freezer. I guess that's a more humane way of dealing <laughs> with these frogs. And they're getting into a big thing about these invaders. They call them invaders. But the truth is these cane toads were imported from Hawaii, where they were living perfectly peacefully, having a very nice time, and the Australians kidnapped them and then forced them to live in Australia and work in Australia to destroy the cane beetle, which was only, basically, the cane beetle was destroying the sugar crop. And what's sugar anyway, other than a drug? I mean, sugar's got absolutely no nutritional value whatsoever, so here they are, the Australians import this toad from Hawaii and force it to work to protect their drug crop. And now they call it invaders, and they're going around behaving in a shocking way, trying to deal with this thing. But when I read this story, I thought, well, that's, you know, there's an interesting case of unawareness, really, isn't it? Because, and it's not just dealing with ugly toads. I mean, these toads, actually, I must say, they are quite mean. And one strike and it can kill a crocodile. Now, that's, that's quite a toad. Um, <laughs> it's true. They, they've got a shocking venom. Kill a snake as well. I mean, Australia is a wild country. It's, uh, it's a very beautiful country. Many when I lived in the forest in Australia, I remember being stung by, a, by an ant. An ant. You know, we have ants in this country. I mean, little ants. We think we've got ant problems. You want to live in the forest in Australia. I was stung by an ant that was more painful than a Thai scorpion. I mean, it was so painful. And it was really, I mean, like this, monstrous things. So, this is, I wasn't keeping precepts in those days, and I, I, I went for it with my spade, and I chopped this ant in half. You know what happened? The two halves went off in different directions to get their friends to come back and attack me, and so I, I put an end to that. But Australia's got a lot of problems like that. But dealing with them <clears throat> with unawareness, of course, is not really, that's not the answer. And not just ecological issues, of which there are many, which we could talk about, <clears throat> like meximatosis and so on, but also there's a lot of political issues of <clears throat> training the local rebels to deal with <clears throat> the communists, and then they, it all turns around and backfires on you, and you don't like it, and you blame them, and then you attack them. And these situations that, <clears throat> excuse me, that we find ourselves in, uh, where the circumstances of life are thoroughly disagreeable and even threatening. And these toads are threatening, they're bad news. How do we deal with it? 
Well, the first step to do is to get aware about it. And this is not just to say, well, I am aware. It's not just a matter of knowing it's happening. It's the right kind of awareness. And that's that's why with the instruction, like in the meditation, I always talk about here and now, judgment-free body-mind awareness. And often we, I think usually, we don't, we don't really take on board how powerful developed awareness can be. We think we're aware. We, think we know there's a toad problem. We know there's a such and such a problem. But do we really know it? That's the issue. Yeah. Now, to really know it, to be rightly aware, to be rightly mindful, there's a, a wonderful teaching the Buddha gave. It says, mindfulness overcomes all things. To really, you know, what does it mean? Mindfulness overcomes all things. Does it mean that just to be have this common and garden variety of mindfulness that somehow it's going to solve the problem? No, it needs to be really developed mindfulness, the kind of mindfulness, the kind of awareness that is not taking sides, and that's not uh, that's not such an easy thing. And like there's this this question here tonight, uh, which says. When I heard that Abu Sakawi had been killed, I felt pleased. What should I do with thoughts such as these? Should I follow your advice and sit in non-judgmental awareness in the here and now, or should I judge the thought as unwholesome and then follow the Buddha's advice in dealing with unwholesome thoughts, suppression, transformation, etc.? And then the second question, which is related. I have a cat which became very sick due to a reaction to flea bites. This meant spraying the whole house to kill the fleas. Unfortunately, the spray is strong enough to kill also spiders and wood lice, which over a period have died in their hundreds. I have thought of cases in the past where mice in monasteries have chewed through electric wires and someone has to be employed to get rid of them. Also, even for monks, every time you take a car trips, hundreds of insects may die on the windscreen. So I don't know whether to let the cat suffer and let the fleas live. I would be interested to know your response to such problems. What would you do if there was a plague of wasps at Harnham which threatened the existence of the monastery? So these kind of dilemmas that we find ourselves in, uh, my response to it was when I, when, I, when I find such dilemmas for myself or I hear other people talking about them is to reflect on the way we receive the dilemma not the dilemma itself it's tempting to go out and fixate on the dilemma the aspects of the dilemma the different causes for it to come about as if somehow if we understood that in our head that that would solve the dilemma from a practice perspective, at least the way I approach it, is to come back to the kind of awareness with which I'm receiving the dilemma. Is it possible to hold this dilemma about fleas and the cat or about wasps or rats or about mind states like being pleased about Sakari being dead or I shouldn't be pleased but I am? How do we receive these dilemmas? Now, even in asking this question, I don't know who asked this question, but at the end it says, what would you do if there was a plague of wasps at Harnam which threatened the existence of the monastery? 
And that seems to me like a pretty straight question wanting a straight answer. But my feeling is if I say, well, I think I would do this, then probably somebody would go and quote me and say, oh, well, Ajmanendo said he would do such and such, so I'll do that. Now, I suspect this is what would happen, but so I'm not going to tell you what I would do because I don't want to take responsibility for somebody else's actions. And this is the point. This is not like just a cop-out, but rather the encouragement in the Buddha's teaching is to recognize that we are individually responsible. We're individually responsible for what we do. So even if, even if you, know, you want to save the monastery and you want to go around and kill all the wasps to save the monastery, even if you do it, even if you justify it, still there's the act of killing. It's an intentional act of killing. And still, the person who does it is responsible. So my feeling about these things is how to get into the optimum position for being able to take responsibility for our actions. How to get into the optimum position. Because whatever we do, so long as we're born, we're going to encounter dilemmas, frustrations, difficulties, and sometimes really, really difficult ones. And there's no way we can avoid them, not completely. We might spend a lot of effort and energy trying to avoid them. There's no point in, in blaming and judging and reacting because that just empowers the opposite. If we take it from a practice perspective and we say, well, how can I be in the optimum position for taking, so that I can take full responsibility for my actions? And I would say that this is what the cultivation of this kind of awareness is. So... And as I said, it's not just any old awareness. It's the awareness that really knows how to not take sides. So you can sit there, for instance, and you have the thought in your mind, Zakari's dead. Good. He was a real rotten egg if ever there was one. Mm-hmm. And then another part comes and says, oh, I shouldn't have such thoughts. I'm a Buddhist. And you feel really guilty. And having such thoughts as, I'm pleased Zakari's dead, I shouldn't think such thoughts. There's a dilemma, isn't it? I mean, the truth is, on one level, whoever this person asks, is pleased that Sakawi's dead. And on another level, they feel ashamed or guilty about such a thought. And then he says, should I sit in non-judgmental awareness, or should I judge the thought as unwholesome and then follow the Buddha's advice for dealing with unwholesome thoughts, suppression, transformation, etc.? I don't think it's a one or the other with these things. It's not like just sitting in judgmental awareness as if somehow that is, in non-judgmental awareness, as if somehow that's not doing anything. We can hear it like that. Well, being mindful of this mind state means just sitting there and doing nothing. No. It's a very difficult thing to do. It's a very difficult thing to, to not take a position. The habit is always wanting to take a position. Is it okay to be pleased that Zakari's dead? Or am I bad for thinking, being, feeling good that Zakari's dead? And which is the right position? I would ask the question, is it possible to not take a position on that? To acknowledge the fact, yes, there's happiness for this person that Zakari's dead. Yes, there's feeling ashamed or guilty or doubtful about having such a thought. 
What if we don't actually take sides? Now, this kind of awareness takes training. This kind of awareness takes training, not moving in the mind. And as, a, as, a, as an argument, philosophical argument, I'm not sure how far we would get with it, but in terms of practice, when we're sitting meditation and we come across these dilemmas, there is a kind of effort that we can make whereby we don't have to move. We can acknowledge. We can acknowledge these different positions, but we don't have to move on them. And if we exercise this capacity, then we discover that awareness can hold it. Awareness can hold dilemmas. And they don't have to be frustrating. There can be a dynamism there. There is a dynamism there. There's an energy there. But that's creative dynamism. That's a creative energy. It's a dynamic energy. And that's very good for practice. That, energy. that frustration, that's creative frustration. In the Zen tradition, they give you these koans, which are absolutely impossible, ultimately frustrating questions, which are designed to generate this kind of energy. They ask you a question, or they give you a question which you have to ask yourself, the koan, and in asking it, you just, I can't answer it. I can't handle it. And when I can't handle it, what happens to I? When I can't handle it, what happens to it? Now, if we have an ability to rest to rest back into the awareness, which is alert, alive, sensitive, feeling, and knowing what's going on, but is not taking sides, we're not suppressing. And we're not avoiding. We're not denying. There's not a problem that's going to come back and get us later. But we're holding it. And, and I actually becomes, becomes ground down in the process. The I, which just loves to take a position. When, when there's nothing to take a position on, when we let go of all our positions, because we, not just as an act of will, but because we've considered the limitation of, of taking positions, and we've seen what happens when we take positions. And by way of experiment, we let go of taking positions and we simply observe what happens is that this I starts to fade out. The very energy that's created by the dynamism of a dilemma actually does me in. There was something else related to this which I came across recently. I was reading a um, correspondence between two scholars. One was a Theravadan scholar and a uh, Tibetan scholar. And both very, very highly acclaimed and, and respectable and capable uh, scholars of their own tradition. And they were uh, dialoguing about the true nature of sati, or mindfulness. And in the course of this dialogue, the Theravadan scholar was relating how he had been at the uh, Insight Meditation Center, IMS, in Mar Barry, Massachusetts, uh, place you know, probably a lot of you heard of Jack Cornfield, Joseph Goldstein's place in, in Massachusetts and he'd been on retreat there and for quite a long time and, and in the corridor where he was doing walking meditation there was uh, a text hanging on the wall and this text said allow everything and uh, he was describing in this correspondence how infuriated he became by this because this contradicts the Buddha's teachings. 
as this, this person here comments, you know, the Buddha is a device of dealing with unwholesome thoughts. You know, that's quite right. The Buddha did said a meditator does not tolerate unwholesome thoughts. You know, the thought to hurt, the thought to harm in any way. A meditator does not tolerate such thoughts. And yet this text on the wall in Barry, Massachusetts says, allow everything. And so, uh, this Theravadan scholar, he wanted to take this thing off the wall and replace it with what the Buddha really said. And when I read that, I thought, well, that's interesting because certainly I don't, I wouldn't disagree with what the Buddha said. Uh, you should, you don't entertain unwholesome states of mind. However, from a practice perspective, it's been my experience that I've had to look very, very closely at compulsive tendencies to automatically judge and condemn certain states of mind, like unwholesome states of mind. You know, the, the serious Protestant Christian conditioning that I had taught me to be thoroughly guilty about pretty well everything, actually. <laughs> but, but some things in particular, you know, like being angry, you know, you should not be angry. And so whenever feeling angry arose, yeah, I'd feel guilty about it. And there's a slap, this judgment on it, reject it totally. And as a result, this anger stuck around for many, many years. Or feeling guilty itself. You know, you know, you're a wicked sinner. Well, I obviously am, so I should feel guilty. And yet guilt is a really terrible state of mind. And so whenever guilt would arise, it's just, you know, it's, it's so utterly, ultimately frustrating. It's just going to dismiss it. It's wrong. Guilt is wrong. Guilt is bad. And this is an unwholesome state of mind. So the Buddha's teaching said, you know, you should get rid of unwholesome states of mind. That's right. But after many, many years, it was my discovery, and I know it's true for many others as well, that we need to learn to make a different kind of effort whereby instead of immediately following our reaction to judge and condemn unwholesome states of mind, we do need to be able to receive them, just as they are. Before we can actually make the right effort to learn how to be free from unwholesome states of mind, like, for instance, I'm pleased that Zakari's dead, finding pleasure in somebody having been killed is an unwholesome state of mind. But before we can make the kind of effort which allows ourselves to really deal with that in an appropriate way, first we have to at least admit it. We have to allow ourselves to feel what we feel. We have these deeply conditioned responses of judging, condemning, rejecting feelings and thoughts that we've been told are bad, either by our carers or by society. And we don't have the opportunity, we don't even have the chance to investigate these things because of these reactions. And so it's true, actually, it's appropriate, What was, as far as I'm concerned, what was on the wall at IMS there, to allow everything, yes, that's appropriate. On one level, we need to allow everything, receive it, to be honest about it. Like with the frogs in Australia, the, fro the Australians have got to be honest about the fact that they created the problem. They are not invaders. Mm. First, we've got to be honest about the fact that we create a lot of the problems that we've got by the way we relate to these issues, these issues. Positions that we take. And once we've allowed it into consciousness to be received just as it is with here and now judgment-free body-mind awareness, then we can investigate it. But the quality of awareness with, awareness with which we're investigating is very different 
from the common garden variety of awareness with which we generally operate in the world. The common garden variety kind of awareness with which we operate in the world is usually polluted by our preferences. I like this, I don't like that. And we take sides. I was uh, in Sunderland the other day, very nice city, Sunderland. I was uh, visiting Sunderland the other day. A good friend invited me to come for a cup of tea in his lovely house. And while we were there, uh, the television was on. And Tim Henman was playing at Queen's against some American chap with a Russian name, whose name I've forgotten right now. And anyway, I was watching this, and as always when I'm watching television or all these things, I'm also watching here as well. I'm watching inside as well as outside. And, uh, yeah, I, I really wanted Tim to win. You know, this Russian-American guy is probably a nice guy, but I wanted Tim to win. Poor Tim. I mean, he's, the newspapers give him such a hard time, and he's you know been at it for a long time, and he seems like a very decent chap, really. And uh, so I would like him to win. And, and this tendency of taking sides. Here I am wanting Tim Henman to win. And, so is that appropriate to want Tim Henman? Well, I don't know if it's appropriate, but I do. That's a fact. But what do you do with that? Is it possible? Is it possible to feel what we feel in terms of our conditioned preferences without becoming them? Is it possible? Well, I would say if there is well-developed here and now, judgment-free, body-mind awareness, then it is possible. It doesn't compromise our discernment. We can hold a dilemma, we can hold a competition. The World Cup is going on, as we discussed last week. Just before Puja tonight, I I asked Anagarika Nino here how Serbia was doing. And he said, terrible. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry. He said, I don't mind. I mean, this this guy's practice is really well developed. I don't know if I'll let him back into the country or not. <laughs> you know, when you watch the World Cup, I mean, it, I know a lot of people get into a dilemma. You know, they are interested, but they think they shouldn't be, or they're not interested and they think they should. The fact is, we have these conditioned preferences that come from the past. All our preferences come from the past, and the past is dead, the past is gone. There's absolutely nothing we can do about the past. What we can do, though, is feel what we feel now. We don't have to agree with it. If we feel pleased that Zakawi is dead, we don't have to agree with that. But we also don't have to feel guilty. We can enjoy watching football or tennis or whatever. It doesn't mean to say we have to agree with our preferences or become our preferences. If we train awareness, if we really train awareness to not, really not take sides, then we can hold dilemmas, and the, the dilemma can produce an energy which actually propels us on the path of practice. Something that's frustrating like this dilemma here of wasps in the monastery or fleas and cats, you know, that kind of dilemma, we don't have to get the right position. I want to get the right position. Sad, sorry, contracted, egotistical me wants to know which position I can stand on because I feel secure when I've got somewhere to stand. But awareness actually doesn't have to have a position. So if we can hold in awareness these dilemmas, these really difficult, challenging questions, as an experience, not just as an, as a, as an argument, but as an experience, what we might discover is that there's an intuitive 
understanding comes through from a place beyond me. And it's my experience that I can trust in that. I can afford to trust in that intuitive understanding that says this is the action. This is the action. And then I come along and I start to, oh, I've discovered that. Uh, 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 that's not. Uh. To really be so sharp, so, so precise that we see where I want to come in and start taking credit for something that actually I didn't do. That's also another level of honesty. Instead of not taking responsibility for things that I have done, like importing toads into Australia so they can maintain the drug habit, you know, that's also honesty, actually admitting what we're doing uh, in a situation. So whatever the dilemmas that we come across, the situations, the frustrations that we find ourselves having to deal with, uh, rather than, than, than becoming, allowing ourselves to become fixated on the characteristic or the, the, the elements of the dilemma, yeah. to first prioritize the awareness. How well are we receiving this? How well are we, how freely are we receiving this? And then we're in a position, then we have a perspective, a broad perspective, whereby we can allow all sorts of possibilities to come in. Sometimes understandings just come up from, you goodness knows where they come from. You don't even want to know where they come from. But you know you can trust in them. There's a, uh, a simile the Buddha gave once when he was sitting on the banks of the Ganga River, talking to his monks, and a, a big log was going down the river, and, and uh, the Buddha talked on this occasion about how if eight things didn't go wrong, then that log would reach the ocean. And he goes through and lists all these things that, that could go wrong. And the ocean, of course, is nirvana. nirvana. That uh, if these eight things didn't happen, then the log would reach the ocean. And, and likewise, one practicing if they didn't fall into these conditions. And starts off by talking about if it doesn't go aground on that shore, if it doesn't go aground on this shore, if it doesn't land on an island, if it doesn't get picked up and taken away, and, and if it doesn't go rotten and sink and all these, these things. And the image he talks about, if it doesn't go aground on this shore or that shore, literally what he's talking about in the simile is talking about one shore is the, um, is the six sense bases, i.e. is nose, tongue, body, and mind. And then the other shore is the the stimulus, the sight, sound, smells, taste, touches, and mental impressions. And if we don't, if the log doesn't go get, get grounded on one of these shores, and, or we don't get locked into taking positions for our senses, for or against them, then we'll continue on our path. And when I contemplate this image, and also when Ajahn Chah used to talk about this, he would uh, present it in a, in a way where he would go, each bank of the river is like happiness or unhappiness or liking or disliking. In our daily life, if we just make our practice being mindful of the tendency to get fixed on one of these, on happiness or on unhappiness, or liking or disliking. I find liking and disliking is a brilliant object of meditation. It just goes through the day. Just not to say you should or shouldn't be liking or disliking. That's too easy. But just to watch, just to watch, liking, disliking, liking, disliking, no judgment. Now, it's not an easy thing to do. Yeah. When we like something, what does it feel like? 
I, mean, I always feel justified. <laughs> when, I, when I like something, I feel totally justified in liking something, even if it's something completely inappropriate. There's part of me feels thoroughly justified. And then when I dislike something, I also feel thoroughly justified. I feel totally righteous when I dislike something. Yeah, I feel completely justified. But are we really justified? Well, we all know we're not. And so to train awareness, actually this is a very helpful exercise, just, just to go through the day, not feeling guilty about what we like and dislike. You know, that's just more reaction. That's what we were trained to feel. But rather to abide as that awareness which receives liking and disliking, receives it. And then once we know how to allow it, once we know how to receive it, then we can investigate it. And then our relationship to it is transformed. Not just suppressed, not just avoided, but our relationship to it is transformed. We're not manipulating our reactions, but rather we're shifting our relationship to it. And that's an experience. It's trying to at least talk about an experience that we can have in practice. That If we do experience this shift in, in awareness, well then we've got a great tool for learning how to hold these dilemmas. And so for this evening, I think that's probably all I want to say about handling dilemmas. Thank you very much for your attention.